0: So welcome to Heartlines, this is Shane and this is episode 73. I hope you're well. Now this season we are talking about beverage and people in the industry here in Ireland. Now if you're interested in this subject, please leave a review or a comment. Also if you're enjoying Heartlines, you can also follow me on Instagram at Heartlines Podcast. Now on today's episode we have a Wine Writer of the Year. This person also judges beer and spirits, has won many awards and also has a PhD or in the works. And on that note, please welcome... Susan Boyle. How are you doing today Susan?
1: I'm great thanks Shane. Delighted <laughs> to be here chatting to you. Yeah PhD in the works. I don't know I think anyone who starts a PhD it's in the works for a while. I'm, I'm gonna get there <laughs> but you know it's um definitely the pandemic threw a little bit of a spanner in in the timeline but you know it's um it's a marathon not a sprint <laughs> with <it>. a PhD. <laughs>
0: so you got lots of that's why I brought you on because you got lots of when I, when I saw your your like bio and I was like wow, this, 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 this woman has lots of, you know, varying experiences in like spirits and beer and food and wine and everything. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, let's go. Okay. Before you are this Susan Boyle, like what we before the way, were you always uh, into like, yeah, you know, uh, food and food science, stuff like that.
1: Um, So I just love flavors and tastes and I love people. Um, so I'm really, really curious. Uh, my initial academic background is I did drama and theater studies in Trinity in the University of California. Um, and people are like, oh, and now you judge beer. How did that happen? <laughs> I always like to say that um, ancient Greeks kind of were not onto a good thing. So mm-hmm. they're the ancient Greek god of wine and the ancient Greek god of theatre was Dionysus so I'm like the Greeks knew that there was this ability that both theatre can transform the way you look at things and alcohol has the possibility of also altering how we see things and how we interact with the world as well so this idea that that you can have these two states that kind of change people's perceptions the Greeks were very comfortable with that so um, I'm not saying I'm an ancient Greek god but I'm saying we can learn a little bit from the past as well bringing two things together so um with the drama and theater studies yeah I just um I was always really interested in kind of immersive theater experiences and um really loved how you told stories and as I started to get more interested in the drinks world I was fascinated by the people in it. I was fascinated how they got into it so this is interesting that I'm doing a podcast telling you how I got into into drinks because um that's something that I was always really curious about taste nice things and meet nice people it's great (laughs)
0: I mean, okay, so you are doing like, you know, you're studying the arts, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, acting and performance stuff like that. So, yeah, of course, it is storytelling, like in what I do as well in my job in the industry as well. I, it's you're telling a story, yeah, um, and you're you're kind of bringing people on that journey back to a time, you know, when there was, you know, the origins of a, a whiskey or a spirit or whatever. So it's interesting that you're talking with the Greeks. I and we'll, we'll get into that later on. I, I know you uh, done some research on. Egyptian brewing and beer yeah I
1: um yeah I worked with the British Museum to rebrew an ancient Egyptian ale uh for them um and that was a fascinating project because I think initially um I was brought on board because I'm quite expressive when I'm tasting um, okay. often when I'm at beer competitions there's lots of pictures of me not looking very happy about the beer that's in my glass um And uh, this is for um, a YouTube um, project a number of years ago where they wanted to um, open up um, the archives of the British Museum and find a way for people to connect more with the digitized um, information and archives that they have, Um, which is a movement in um, museum studies because the kind of decentralizing a museum is really important at the moment because um, they're not Elgin's marbles but I'm not going to get into the, 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 the stickiness or the, 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 the the questions around who owns things but the important thing mm-hmm. is once you open a door um yeah. you have to find a way of, of helping people to communicate and to uh, connect with that so what was lovely was i worked on this project uh to using the resources of the british museum to rebrew um an ancient egyptian beer um, and we found out really interesting things doing it we found out that like thousands of years ago the ancient egyptians were drinking cold fizzy beer and um, because no one had done a recreation in a replica of uh, Vessel before, um, and we matched the porosity of the vessel um, with that of the sample in the British Museum and found out that it caused the liquid to wick to the outside of the pot, um, which kept the beer on the inside colder. Um, so cold fizzy beer thousands of years ago when they were building the pyramids was extraordinary and the beer tastes delicious because i think as i said the i think the point of it was to have me tasting something disgusting for a youtube video but actually it was it was yummy and i kind of knew it was going to be because making beer is not easy and it's time consuming and it takes resources and particularly when we look at the past when resources were more limited People are lazy. No one's going to waste their time or waste mm. their energy or waste their resources making something that isn't delicious. Um, And that's exactly what the ancient Egyptians were doing. And I was fortunate enough to get to find out that uh, firsthand, but thousands of years later.
0: Now, how did you really create the kind of like... Uh recipe like did you have like a, a type of a yeast or or something to work with yeah or?
1: so the ancient egyptians were great um they like told you everything they did basically um and then they drew a little picture of it and then they also made a maquette of it and then if they really weren't sure they put all the ingredients together really nicely and left them in the tomb so that then you could brew, brew beer in the afterlife as well so there's a lot of archaeological evidence um, and i worked with evidence from like an archaeologist called delwin samuels samuels and um, on her um, um, ideas of what she thought were in the remains that were found in the bottom of pots at at a couple of archaeological sites. So that's really what we worked off Um, and then used uh, sourced ancient grains that were available to the ancient Egyptians at the time. So um, using those old grains and then using this um, really interesting two step mash process which is slightly technical but it means Mm. that you keep the enzymes alive while you also break down the starch and then starch conversion happens at the same time that you're brewing so um it's it's very quick um and it's yeah really um surprisingly delicious technical but um like brewing beer is technical now so of course (laughs) it's gonna have a technical skill but it was yeah surprising how how it worked out and it worked out really well
0: for the uninformed what's a maquette
1: oh maquette it's like a small little um like uh figurines of what it what it looked like so they would um have these like little um like kind of figurines of like made out of either wood or um or pottery to show you the people in the brewery doing the brewing processes so you know a group of people uh, collecting the grains a group of people grinding the grains Um, so you had a visual representation of of what they were doing there's such a, a wealth of different ways of representing within the ancient Egyptian um culture that um it's really nice to be able to see it because they left an awful lot of evidence behind so then you just kind of have to join the dots a little bit and what I found doing the project was a lot of the people who had worked on these kind of the remnants that had been found around ancient Egyptian beer they just hadn't taken it the next step and done a, a a rebrew i suppose and yeah. using um things like replica pots and stuff i think vessels are really important because changes when you cook things in different things it changes things when you make beer in different things and we know it changes when you distill um alcohols in, in different vessels too so uh that was a really interesting part of the project to be able to bring to life
0: and what kind of alcohol strength are we talking
1: so we found it very hard. Uh, so um, uh, there were there were three of us who worked on this project. And when we were working together, it was really hard to keep down the alcohol um, content of it, actually, because this method um, is incredibly efficient. So it, it converts starch to sugars and the yeast eat the sugars really, really super quickly. Um, and that obviously produces the carbon dioxide, so it's bubbly. Um, and that happens very quickly and very efficiently. So we kept having to think about how much, uh, because we knew, because also the ancient Egyptians told us that they would drink a lot of this beer and that they often the people who were building the pyramids were paid in, in this beer as well, so they would have an allowance each day. So we knew that it couldn't have been something that was like 11%, you know, oh, or yeah, else yeah. those pyramids would not be still standing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: down, yeah, so yeah.
1: we had a feeling that it was probably light and refreshing. Yeah. We really had to keep pulling out the grain in the mash build and um, to get it down to a low level um, because it was a very efficient method um, which which was fascinating very quick and very um very efficient in relation to uh, making a lot of booze so we had to use less grain than we thought
0: and what type of grain was it? malted or malted was it, was it so this...
1: we used a mixture of malted and unmalted grains um, yeah. We used emmer um which is like a, an ancient um an ancient grain um and we used barley as well um and then we um did this two-step mash process where you you soak um the the grains so that you release the enzymes into the water and then you heat up another portion of the grains and that breaks down the starch it becomes like a porridge when porridge starts to thicken and then yeah. you mix the two together and then it means the enzymes can start cutting down the starch um into um into a convertible or converted sugars into glucose so that then it can be um gobbled up by the um by the yeast and what we did as well in relation to yeast was we knew that they would preserve yeast cakes from previous brews so um I worked with a brewer Michaela Charles and we used yeast from a brew that she did before so it was like harvesting yeast and we used it again so we tried to be like we were doing it in central London so it's not like we were like in 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 the middle of like Egypt so we had to keep that in mind, but we, we were as true as we could be, I think to, to the process and we learned things from it. And by by following that path um, and by trying to stick to the archaeological evidence as best we could, um, we discovered interesting things and it was it was lovely. There's a YouTube video that documents cool. everything and um, a couple of um, like a couple of blog posts as well from the British Museum. So it's, it's easy to find out information about it, but I keep getting questions about it, which is lovely. Like even a few years later, people People like, how did you do this? And I yeah. did a, an event in Oxford um, a few months ago as well, where I did a little talk in, in the Atomoleon Museum, which was lovely, um, talking about how, how we came up with it and how we did it. So it was it was a super fun project to work on. It's also a chapter of my PhD. Oh, okay, okay.
0: <laughs> what, what kind of batch did you come out with? Did you make it like in a small batch? and what, Where is yeah. it now or is it still around or what's...
1: Oh, no, it's not. So it was made to be drunk fresh. Okay. This is also what we found that it needed to be just enjoyed straight, fresh. As soon yeah. as uh, as soon as you started to see the bubbles slow down, that meant you needed to drink it. Um, and uh, we uh, used um, a small vessel, so the replica vessel. I think it was oh maybe twenty one liters. Not not super big. Okay. That was the batch size that that we used. So we were um, contained to the batch size by this replica pot. They would have had like thousands of pots on the go and then as one was ready it would be like put out and people would drink using a straw so that the um the remnants from the uh, fermentation process would be left at the bottom of the um of the vessel and people would just drink from the top using a straw clay clay so pottery clay. vessels okay. yeah
0: cool cool
1: lovely yeah. how did
0: you go from stage acting to you know Beer and 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 going into that world, like, did you did you go and study? Like, did you go and do distilling, brewing course? Any of that I think of
1: that? it's Jane. I think it's always really interesting when you look backwards. It always seems to make sense. You know, okay. you're like, oh, I followed this path and this path. When I was yeah. doing it, I really didn't have a clue. Um, I was literally just following the things that I was interested in. So I was more interested in um the behind the scenes side of things. I never thought I would actually be a performer like it's so strange when i i never thought i would end up writing a one woman show about wine and i never like it just was something that I never thought I would do. I didn't think I would perform. Um I really thought that my my whole role was going to be like directing or design for theater. Um so I just didn't have my eye on that like acting prize. It was very very unusual for me. Um but I started going I suppose I grew up and not this oh it always sounds like nepotism when you say this. Like I grew up in a pub. Um so uh that does help. So Where, where I, are you from? Where are you from? Kildare. So um our family business is boils in Kildare. Um so it's um it was my granddad's pub it's my dad's and my sister's now running it um and I think what's interesting is actually my sister lectures in um, beer wines and spirits in uh, TU Dublin as well as running a pub Uh, she's a woman who has has lots of jobs Um, and what I think is fascinating about that is she often says that with her students that it's like no one goes into your school when you're in fifth year and says do you know what you should do distilling that's what you should do. It's an amazing career. Um, so it's very like people don't tend to find out about alcohol just because of the age restriction, unless they come from a background where they're exposed to it and they're familiar with the industry a little bit or they come into it afterwards so it's quite like it's interesting in Ireland this isn't the same in other in other places where they have a more integrated um, alcohol culture you know but in Ireland people at like 17 18 when they're filling out their CAO form they're not often thinking do you know what I want to be I want to be a brewer or I want to be a distiller because these are not professions that they have come in contact with yet because you know, the legal drinking age is 18. So it often takes a little bit of time to get into it. So I had a little bit of a head start because I had been collecting glass in the pub since I was able to walk practically. So I was aware of the industry and, and that's really helpful. And then when I went to um, college, my dad would get invitations to wine tastings. Really found out was that by tasting things side by side, I could start to understand them better. So it became more about like understanding why something tastes like something because of where it comes from, mm. rather than sitting down and studying and and reading a list of things. Um, and I was very fortunate; I fell into step with Jean Smullen, who is an extraordinary wine writer and broadcaster. And she kind of took me under her wing from 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 those very early stages um, and really um, encouraged me to just keep tasting, just keep meeting people, and then start to look for opportunities. So, um, as well with that, I did like the WSET exam. So that's the Wine Spirit Education Trust exams up to um, advanced level, so that then I would have like that kind of the, as well as having the practical experience, also have the backup of you know having a little bit of a stamp and a qualification, um off the back of that too, um and then I was kind of mixing these kind of worlds of. Uh, doing arts work and then also doing um like doing some like hosting some wine tastings doing some wine writing on the side um and then also through my sister i just got really into beer because um I got fascinated by again the flavors and the tastes, um, and the fact that at that stage, like the Irish craft beer um, movement was really kind of kicking off. So it was an exciting time to be able to meet people who had breweries and were making delicious things. So um, I did a little course with the IBD on uh, which is the um, Institute of Brewers and Distillers on um, beer judging with Tim O'Rourke, um, and that really kind of kicked me into the world of um, yeah, beer tasting and beer judging and. And I just became curious. I thought it was fascinating with wine when we taste something in a glass, like it's, it's all grapes. So the thing that affects the flavor is either where it's made, who made it. Um, or how it is made too so the influence of yeast and how it's fermented Um, well with beer it's kind of a slightly different process because there's other things that can be in the beer so if I taste a beer and it tastes of chocolate the first thing I need to do is is ask is there chocolate in this beer and it might be or it could be the combination of the malts that were used and I liked this direct approach with beer that I could ask a question and I could get an answer and I could taste something and I could go oh that tastes like this it has these like bubble gummy fruity flavours because it's an ale yeast and was fermented at a higher temperature you know or it has this cool crisp um, flavor and that comes from again from the yeast profile or maybe sometimes from the water profile and I loved that the way that I could learn about the technicalities of how alcoholic beverages are formed is like an open book in beer you can ask people questions and um, you can find the answers and you can you can taste and you can taste the result of that I think also because the process of making beer is is so much faster compared to the effort that's needed for a wine so you only have one harvest a year in mm-hmm. a wine and like all those grapes it's 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 all focused on that you know and and if things don't go to plan that's not really good and they cannot go to plan for lots of reasons it can be because of the weather it can be because of technical difficulties and um, it or things that just happen mishaps in um mm. in the winery and um, but with beer people are much more honest about going like oh you know this happened or this was a happy accident or actually no that didn't quite quite work out because Mm. it's turning over in a much shorter time so like in in about six weeks you can get a great beer Mm -hmm. Uh, of course you can take longer you can take shorter but the evolution of learning is so much faster because you can do so many more brews in the space of time that you have to wait for grapes to grow and be harvested and ferment and do all that. So um I felt I could learn faster about alcohol by learning about beer.
0: Yeah, okay, go back to the W the 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 accreditation for the yes. spirits. Where would you get edu- accredited these days for that? Is that online or is it in a, a, like an actual building in Dublin or around the um,
1: world? So there is like the WSET. So that's the the wine spirit education trust they um have educators in ireland so you can do courses that are in person mm-hmm. you just look it up and you find out like who's the provider in the area they've yeah. also segmented now and they run spirit courses as well which is really good um and uh you can sign up to those Um i know they do remote versions of it as well um but any of the ones that have tastings involved i think are good to do in person i think you learn a lot from from the actual ed- educator as well i know um there's lots of people like i would definitely point out Someone like Maureen O'Hara. She does amazing wine courses. Uh, She is super on the ball and really knows her stuff and it's a pleasure to any time i get to taste with her so um yeah if people are interested in those kind of courses and then also going back to like what i was saying with my sister um and her lecturing work um keep an eye out for what's happening in um, universities as well i think the courses in tu dublin are really excellent um they've some lovely brewing and distilling courses that are happening mm. there um and i'm really impressed and you can take different modules of that you can take them as um as circ- courses you don't have to start a whole four year degree
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: but there's lots of lots of potential with that too if people want to get qualifications under their belt and um, but also just getting in there and tasting doing what i did find opportunities um to be able to put yourself in rooms with other people where you can taste things side by side and don't be afraid to ask questions i don't know everything i am looking forward to always learning more i i never mind asking you a question and also i never mind answering someone else's question as well so um, I think finding finding those spaces and those kind of communities where you can do that is 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 where it's all at and where it's fun. The like the beer judging scene is super fun. It's okay. absolutely brilliant. Um, I have so much fun doing it. I get to go to extraordinary places and meet really nice people. Most of the time I'm tasting horrible beers. <laughs> I often think I have to taste thousands of things a year to find to find the good things uh, so that other people don't have to taste the stuff that isn't so great Uh, but it really hones your ballot and and you learn a lot and and you learn a lot beer beer tasting tends to be um, a bit of a community as well so you you tend to taste with other people you're usually on a on a panel or on a table with four or five other judges Um, they tend to have a mix of expertise Like I said, my my expertise would be in my palate and my sensory ability. Mm. I'm not a brewer or a distiller. I have brewed. I, I certainly wouldn't uh, wouldn't call myself a brewer, but I I, I I can do it at a push. I'm like I'm like someone who can make a really good cake. I've one recipe and I can do that really well, but I'm 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 not a technical technical brewer. So it's wonderful then to be able to taste alongside someone who is an am- amazing brewer because you learn an awful lot from them as well. So it's great.
0: And when you talk about like uh, your tastings, for example, um, you're talking about. Explain what a table captain is on a a beer tasting.
1: Well, usually uh, what happens is I suppose it's like anything when you have a panel and you have to come up with, um, you you have to come up with like a consensus maybe sometimes on, um, on what beers you think are the best in that round that you want to put forward. Okay. Um and what a table captain does is they kind of sit as a mediator within the um within the other judges. So um if I have a role as table captain, then it's my job to listen to everyone and then work out where is the middle point or um how we come to an agreement about what beers we consider are the best. And I think this is really interesting because um People's tastes are different, you know, mm. um, and overcoming your own personal bias. Like there's just some things I absolutely love. And there's some things I am still really struggling to learn to love. Uh, like I'm not a fan of smoked beers. I like I really struggle with them. Someday I might wake up and I might love them. But, you know, I'm I'm still waiting for that to happen.
0: Um, I actually tasted uh I had um, I had uh, Tom Crean Brewery on oh, yeah. the previous episode. And they have a smoked one. It, it it tastes like smoky bacon. Yeah. And it actually won I think it won an award. It won the Blossom Heron. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, for the stout. Super. Porto, It was nice. It's different. It's it, it is. It is it's quite smoked, but I like it as well. But um so you're not really a fan of smoke. What about sour beers? Are you a fan of sour beers?
1: adore sour beers. Really? Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of like Lambics and Sours. Um, I think they sit in that point between beer and wine. So I think they're great. <laughs> I think they're great gateway beers for getting people who might be more used to the tang and the acid of a wine um, interested in beer. Um yeah, I think, and like oh, if you spend time in Belgium, um, I I I know Frank Boone quite well, which is an absolute pleasure. Um, I've judged them many times, and he's just phenomenal when you go to his brewery because he literally. Ah, he basically saved this style of beer, these like lambic beers, um, because he worked in a brewery when he was like a teenager, and he just couldn't bear to see it close and die. So he he kind of committed his life to it, and it's utterly, utterly fascinating when you see these large open fermenters, and yeah, it's you're like it's it it, it literally is wild <laughs> and delicious.
0: Very fruity though, very fruity. I've had uh, what was I had white hag there recently. It was very fruity. I think it was like the. Lemonade, or was a lemon? I was very. Yeah. I I'm I'm just not used to sour beers. I just think, I think sour beers are for someone who doesn't want to drink that much.
1: Oh, okay, so it depends. Like, and it because, depends like, yeah, because it, it's because, yeah, because it's a nice much. little,
0: it's a nice you drop, know? but yeah, but it is quite, it's quite tangy, but yeah.
1: I I think it it so it it always depends on the type of beer, and it depends on on the context as well. Um, mm. so um, and like, there's so many different styles of of sour beers as well. Um, for sure so you're you're going to get different things when you taste taste different things but what i like about it is that it's just another avenue it's another flavor profile there's more things to taste out there um yeah, and, and and maybe get yourself to Belgium at some stage and, and do a deep dive and, and see how you feel after uh, I've been to
0: Belgium. I've been to Belgium. I was in Brussels. Um, I enjoyed it. I've never been to the Delirium, though. Delirium is the place I mm-hmm. want to go to. The Bible of beers. Uh, Belgian yeah. beer for me, I, I love Belgian beer because it's so diverse. It's the chocolate it's beer, strawberry beer, lambic beer, all that kind of beer. Yeah, super. But when, when you talk about, like, you're always learning this curiosity knowledge, but you said one of your strengths is, like, your sensory. Mm-hmm. So how do you... Uh, reset your sensory palate to, is there a technique for you to reset your like after? Uh,
1: yeah so i use lots of sparkling water is my mm-hmm. my trick um yeah um so and it helps if you can eat something that's kind of neutral so like neutral crackers rice crackers those kind of mm. things um um and that that's really what i do when i'm doing smelling smelling yourself yeah is what resets you like you roll up your sleeve and smell smell the inside of your elbow um that will that will reset your palate so that um or your your olfactory system so yeah. that you can you can go for more but you also have to be a little bit careful sometimes it's about the order of things as well like so you can't and some things are just harder to taste i remember doing um, a competition um, and i got in one morning and in front of me was 78 belgian triples like 78 belgian triples like that's like a marathon like this just you know uh, so your work is kind of cut out for you because Belgian triples are high alcohol mm. high flavor like really intense so you kind of just have to yeah you, you kind of take it in stages and you take little breaks and you try your very best to be as objective and as fair to um the last beer you taste as the first beer you taste
0: And was that in Belgium? I'm guessing that was Belgium because in Belgium, or or was it? Was it where? Where was that? Yeah, it
1: was at the it was at the Brussels Beer Challenge. (laughs) Okay,
0: okay, right. So let's let's uh, let's set the scene a little bit. Okay, so. Let, let's kind of uh, start out your day go the night before or how does it work uh,
1: usually I'll go the night before um, yeah. if I'm coming if I'm coming from Ireland because it's hard to get in super early in the morning <laughs> yeah. you want to be you want to be as fresh as you can as well so you tend to go over the night before um, most competitions tend to be uh, two days long or so okay. um, and usually Usually what they do is the night before a tasting, there'll be some kind of welcome reception uh, for judges. So you get an opportunity to catch up with people you haven't seen for a while, uh, which has been so nice to do after the couple of years of the pandemic when we haven't been able to to see people Mm. um i got so lazy with having so many friends that i would meet regularly um that it was a kind of um, amazing having not seen them for a while to get to see them again so usually there'd be a bit of a reception for judges and you might get a briefing on what to expect over the next couple of days um and then the following morning um you get up um good idea to have a bit of breakfast before you start beer tasting and uh then you usually crack into it like kind of maybe about 9 9 30 there'll, there'll probably be an initial briefing as well to um usually to bring in if there's um if there's local judges who are just joining in that morning you know from the local area who haven't yeah. been able to attend the night before um and then you'll sit down at a table and you meet the people at your table um hope they might be people you know or they might be people okay. that bring you to you um you get to have a bit of a chat they're usually quite clever about um putting people like i said people with different expertise together people from different countries together so that you get like a nice broad range of um of experience on the table um and then you'll get a list of what you're going to be tasting that day what categories you're going to be tasting um there's always a bit of oohs and ahs and excitement about that um and then um and then the beers will start to appear at your table so you usually do them in maybe rounds of rounds of eight to eight to twelve beers um Depending, um, and then you mark all those beers individually, um, and that just keeps going. You'll have a break at lunch, you come back at lunch, you do an afternoon session, you usually finish up about maybe four or five. Then you really need to go for a beer. Okay, so for, <laughs> for breakfast, do.
0: what do you have for breakfast? Do you have like a light breakfast or a Belgian waffle or like an Irish uh, well, fry? Like
1: I, I, I just tried to get some protein in. <laughs> okay, okay. You know, simple as that. I'm very easy, and it depends. I'm, it depends on how tired I am as well. I have a tendency to. Often um prefer to have sleep over, over a long involved breakfast. So if, if I can get an egg or so, I'm usually
0: happy. What kind of amounts are you drinking? Like is it little small little drops? You're sipping. So
1: um with beer tasting or with beer judging, it's important to taste the beer because um when you taste it um and drink it, the beer comes to the back of your palate and you get other flavours through your retronasal passages. And that's partly to do with the carbonation, but also to do with um just the Aromas that are developed in beer, the aromas and flavors. So you do need to sip it. So you need to take a sip, um and then you probably need to sip it again. So you're taking sips of at least every beer, um and then you're cleansing your palate with water in between, water, yeah. crackers, those kind of things.
0: If I was there for a beer with you, would you be very critical? I'd be like, oh, Susan's <laughs> on it again. She oh my god, no shame. I just <laughs>
1: love. So it's really interesting that I feel like my life is kind of split into these these things I have okay. I, I say to people I'm a professional drinker okay. um, and I am but um, it's funny because when I started to do this I'd have friends or when I meet new people they're like oh Susan I don't know if I could bring a wine to your house so I was like yeah. bring all the wine yeah, bring yeah. beers and um, you know you get you get great drinks you get not so great drinks Um, it's fine for me if I'm out having pints with people it's the people that I'm there with I'm really not that concerned about what's in my glass I've clocked off okay. um, as long as it's just acceptable and I certainly don't judge other people for what they enjoy drinking because um why would I that would be a horrible thing to do I'm such a I I like to think I'm a drinkist I'm just like I love to help people put the things that they like most in their glasses that's all I do Uh, and so I have to do these days where I taste a lot, but you don't have to do that if you don't want to. You just get to drink the nice stuff. So mm. it's great, or the stuff that you like. So that's what I'm what I'm I'm really interested in when it comes to um when it comes to drinks. I, it's it's about the experience of enjoying drinking it and and usually being with people. And and when I beer judge, the best part is always the pint afterwards with with your mates.
0: How many judges are we talking per like? Is it a very per festival and per competition? Yeah, it does
1: um. It depends on on the scale and the size of the competition. Sometimes okay. you'll be at competitions where there's like you know maybe ten judges. It's quite select, um. Yeah, yeah. You know, and at other stages you'll be at competitions where there'll just be more than a hundred judges in the room. Um. So it depends.
0: And would you go on brewery uh, brewery tours? And if you rated them rated the the beer a bit low, would they go? Oh, Susan, <laughs> I've got a beer
1: for you. It's anonymous, Shane, which is great. Oh, um, brilliant! So okay. beer tends to be anonymous. Yeah, you. Uh, it it tends to be a situation. Not that like,
0: you yeah, know, I, I don't sense. mind
1: putting yeah. my name to things i'm yeah. really happy um like i'm very happy to stand over anything i say i, I mm. take it that seriously so um i i don't mind and i i'm quite an honest person when it comes to these things um and, you know, uh, sometimes it's just a bad beer and a bad day. Like it's, mm. just, it's no big deal. Like, you know, um, but yeah, when you, when you visit brewery tours, um, you, it's great because you get an insight into how things are made and, and, and you get to meet the people. And yeah, I, I, I love that too.
0: Do you ever go to a, a beer competition and have a food pairing with it? Or is it always just beer?
1: Um, usually at competitions, you're not pairing foods okay. um, with the beers, um, but you'll do food pairing events at other stages. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but they tend to be more kind of specific um, and planned and thought out, but not in yeah. not in a competition situation. Although I did go there's um, a really interesting um, event that happens at the um, Great American Beer Festival in Denver called Paired, um, and what they do for that is that the Brewers Association literally pair um, a brewer and a chef together, um, like months beforehand, and together they develop pairings. So you're starting with pairings that start before the beer has even been made which is incredible because often what happens is that uh, someone cooks something and then you know it then in comes the drinks it's like how do we how do we match that with something to drink and like you know what no matter what they're cooking it didn't take as long as that wine took to grow and to produce so I always think you should start with what's in the glass and then Pair accordingly um mm. but that doesn't tend to happen in in traditional restaurant settings um so this is a really fascinating event because it starts by putting two people together a chef and a brewer and then seeing what they come up with together um nice. so if that's brewing a, a special beer if that's leaving an ingredient out of a dish so that the beer can fill that gap it's amazing like I, I I've tasted extraordinary things at that so that's that's super fun
0: I think it is I mean over the last few years I mean even ireland uk and america or world over like crap beer is becoming a big thing and it's not just yeah. having a beer and going to like you know when i was first started drinking i'd go to the the, the pub and I'd have like hot nuts or crisps and peanuts yeah. now you have beer like recommendations like wine you'll have like you'll have a fish or have a pizza mm-hmm. you know so there's all uh, there's also a thought of not just drinking your beer appreciating it with food as well yeah
1: yeah. I think yeah that gastronomic side of it mm. um, I think it's like it just it just makes more sense if you think about how it's um how beers are enjoyed in other places yeah. um, and beer is so so brilliant preparing first of all because it's lower it tends to be lower in alcohol than than wine um you can just drink more of it, which is really delicious uh, without having that much effect of the alcohol as yeah. compared to the wine aspect. And and because of the even serving sizes of beer and um, people tend to switch it up more. So you can open like bottles of beer and then share those throughout different courses of the meals. Mm. The um, Brewers Association in the States also do um, amazing pairings where they'll often have a dish and then they'll have two different beers that contrast with it. So you can just taste how things taste differently with it, bringing out out different elements of of whatever that dish is so um yeah beer and food is is just perfect
0: (laughs) Mm. considering you've traveled a fair bit of the world at this stage um different uh, like it's different from each continent to continent from your experience and what is the most obscure tasting festival you've been to you know around the world
1: (laughs) obscure so um yeah, beer cultures do change. Um, so North America is really at the forefront of um, and and by North America I have to really say specifically the United States and um, mm. um because their craft beer movement is so advanced and so developed um that it's hard to get a bad local craft beer in the states now, which is a really wonderful phenomenon. Um, and so that's an incredibly rich beer culture and then next to that i suppose um or in a different vein is the beer culture in um in belgium which i just adore and then you can't really forget about beer culture in germany which is a whole other thing entirely um and is. wonderful Um, and I have a soft spot for the Czechs because, you know, um, the beers that they're producing, there's like, you know, the home of of Pilsner basically Mm -hmm. Um, and inventing that is is truly wonderful. Um, But one of the most exciting places I've been recently for beer is is Brazil. The Brazilian beer scene is unbelievable. Um, It's imaginative, it's taking all the great things that you see happening in the US and combining that with phenomenal um indigenous and local ingredients um aging things in brazilian hardwoods um, doing phenomenal things with fruits from the amazon that you just have never even seen heard of or i had ever tasted before um and yeah i really really enjoyed that experience um yeah i can't wait to get back to brazil for more beer jitting
0: but well, my wife is from brazil and brazilians will not accept a beer if it's not ice cold they just mm-hmm. won't, like, we're used to moderately, you know, we have a beer that's just chilled. If it's not frozen, like, your hand <laughs> is, like, literally freezing, forget about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they, just, they just want cold beer. Uh, I wouldn't have taught Brazil as a big culture, but then again, I do know her friend does make beer as well. They mm-hmm. still have a culture, I guess, in Ireland. We have a culture of brewing distilling. Uh, that's interesting to hear Brazil uh, is up and coming. I guess they have a lot more... Um, Raw materials you can work with down there, and and if doing... it's
1: phenomenal, I think uh, the reason why maybe there's an opinion that um, we don't know as much about beer in Europe that's being brewed in Brazil mm. is simply because they have an indigenous market and yeah. exporting it out of South America is not necessarily something that's uh, of particular interest because of yeah. exportation taxes. Yeah. So um, there's a, a huge indigenous um, beer industry there, and they've invented their own beer styles. Catarina Sour is Utterly phenomenal, but it's like there's millions of people in Brazil to drink the Brazilian beer, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's bigger in
0: Europe. It, it's, it's you don't it, have it to just... be
1: sending it to Belgium, you no, know.
0: It doesn't need it, doesn't, it doesn't need the rest of the world. It's got a world, you know what I mean? So, yeah, and it's yeah.
1: Um, I think it's interesting because when we think about the Irish context, we are very um export focused in yeah. Ireland. Um, we always have been, we've produced like we've always produced an awful lot of um, produce on the island yes. of Ireland, and we've always needed to look elsewhere for the market for that product and and if you come from a place where you have an indigenous local market there's just not the same drive for export so it may not get famous as famous in other places but that just means you just have to go to the places and drink it there like i was Mm. in austria in vienna last weekend which was extraordinary and they have um phenomenal wines. I think some of the most beautiful wines. But so much Austrian wine just gets enjoyed by people in Austria. Like uh, Vienna is the world's largest urban vineyard and there's vines everywhere around the city. You uh, trek up on into the vineyards and you sit in the middle of these vineyards looking out over onto the Danube drinking like Wienergemistestatz yeah. which is like this um, local um, style of wine that's fermented with at least three different indigenous grape varieties and it's it's. Waterly wonderful, But people are like Austrian wine, you know, um, it's not one of the things that they necessarily think of straight off. And it's amazing.
0: It's also scaling up the operation, I'd say, as well. It's like, look, if you want to bring, bring that to a bigger scale, do they want that? Do, do
1: they want well, yeah, so more? it's like it's, it's what the what's the value in it? Like, yeah. the, I think the reason why um, the Craft Brewers Association in the U.S. has been mm. very, very successful is because they focused on producing beer for a local market so it's like why think about because if you think like packaging transport all that the logistics that are involved in that um when you could sell beer from a tap room on your doorstep yeah make a really okay delicious living and be a destination um like Mm -hmm. that's something to really think about it's just a different business model and it means that like i think there's some phenomenal statistic like 90 percent of americans live within like five or ten miles of a brewery now and that's amazing and that's that's what they've done they've just realized uh, you see it's more of a challenge when we think about ireland because our um our population centers are are so um centered um you know and and that's a little bit more challenging, and because we're we're export led, um, in relation to our our drinks industry in general, I think. Um, so yeah, that's it, It's it's just a different model, but I think it's a very successful model.
0: Probably as well as you're saying, across border taxes maybe in the states. Why would they bother going over to Texas when they can stay like in whatever Absolutely. state they're in? Absolutely, you're get, you're so yeah. right. Like yeah. in the
1: U.S., every single state is like a completely different country. Mm. Um, so it's um it's yeah. more challenging. I've been doing some. I've been doing a lot of work with the control states in the U.S. and it's been fascinating getting to know, um, them better and getting to know that structure better. Um, So it's been it's been interesting to see how when you have, um, I suppose, a strategic approach to the control states that um, you can actually do uh, make huge, huge gains in relation to um, to getting Irish products on 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 shelves and in people's baskets by um, by targeting those markets.
0: What's a control state? Is it North Carolina, South Carolina, or one of
1: these? So the way that it works is there's 17 control states, um, one county within the US, and that Mm. means in those control states, the sale of alcohol is decided at a at a state level. So the state decides um, the quotas of what alcohol they're bringing in, and they decide. where they're being sold through their state-run liquor stores um so i've been working on a project with board bia that i developed for them called the spirit of ireland and it's been it's been absolutely wonderful and tremendously successful target audience for that initially uh, was the u.s control states so i've been traveling a lot to the u.s um to um train um buyers store managers people who work for um for these control boards um on irish spirits um which has been amazing so it's cross category it's like um all irish um spirits and cream liqueurs so it's whiskey it's gins it's mm. it's vodkas it's it's other irish spirits this program that i've developed has been just really well received and and very strategically targeted so in each place that I've rolled the spirit of Ireland out there's been an increase of Irish um, spirit sales by at least 20% in the following month which is utterly phenomenal and I think that it's one of the key reasons why in 2022 there was an increase of of Irish spirits exports to um to North America um by over I think it's over 26% we increased the market which is phenomenal pushing Irish whiskey over the 1 billion mark um and making huge huge inroads but it's because this has been like and and it's really interesting how one strategic project so one project that i've been working on for this spirit of ireland project that that i've been working on for probably the almost the past three years now started mm. just um before the pandemic and then was only able to roll it out in 2022 um There's been so much work that's been happening in Irish whiskey, but as far as I can step back and see, this has been such a strategic project um, that has caused this phenomenal growth and and phenomenal difference in the market. Because it like I I talk to people who actually get the stuff off the shelves and into people's people's baskets. And it's I, I personally think that this one project has been responsible for millions to the Irish GDP. Just very exciting.
0: What about putching? Is that is that making it over to the states in in yep. quantities? Yep,
1: there's putching there too. Yeah, yep. <laughs> during this program and uh, this like, kind of education program, the spirit of Ireland, um, there's an opportunity. We talk a lot about putching, so or I talk a lot about putching, and the and the program talks about it mm. because it's one of the three core um irish products that have geographic indication like you you Mm. can't ignore it it's wonderful and so there's yeah we focus on the the focus on when we talk about the the provenance and why the spirits that come from the ireland of ireland are unique obviously have to relate to irish whiskey irish cream liqueur and irish poaching as being the three that are designated with the gi status
0: that's interesting as well you're talking about like earlier on and go back to where you're talking about um wine made from grapes i actually was talking to Wicklow way wines they make mm-hmm. berry wine yeah so it's quite it's quite niche like wine is but like ireland's not known for wine produ- production but it's interesting yep. to think that there's lots of other producers as well you know cream liqueurs, yep. gins berry wines yeah. beers all sorts
1: i think it's interesting because we we just don't have the climate really for wine now i know climate change and stuff i'm not wishing climate change so that we can get better at growing grapes i just think that that's insane like (laughs) i'm like no let's leave the other countries at it um but we have been importing wine into ireland for over 2000 years um and it's been it's been a reciprocal trade which is interesting so ireland very good at butter and dairy produce um was shipping that out um 2000 years ago and what needed to come back was something that we didn't have so a ballast um yeah. in a boat to you don't send a boat across the sea with nothing in it we know what happened <laughs> We had like those distribution crises with what happened with the canal and everything and you had boats in the wrong places yeah um, oh yeah, yeah you yeah. know when you're thinking about that just in the recent things so people don't send empty boats places you don't you oh. fill it with something that the other place needs so this was happening for a long time in Ireland so we were shipping out shipfuls of butter and we were taking back uh, the best wines from France and Spain and from, from around Europe Um, which meant to things like we wouldn't have had a glass industry in Ireland yeah. Water for crystal wouldn't have been founded except Irish people wanted something fancy to drink their wine out of like it's Phenomenal to think of those kind of things. An Irish guy invented the first commercial corkscrew, um, which is another thing that was phenomenal. An Irish engineer set up the first glass bottle factory in Bordeaux so that the winemakers, this is all like, you know, in the 1800s. So the winemakers and 1700s, so that the winemakers could bring back um, or put their own wine into bottles with their own labels on it and develop um, reputations for their own own production rather than something that was going to be blended um by importers later like this ireland was incredibly strategic um and influential in relation to the wine trade but um we just don't grow grapes here instead we grow potatoes and strawberries and that's fine and plenty of lots of great grain and our dairy herd so sticking things we're good at
0: i'm just curious who was the irish engineer that, that uh done the bottling
1: um, so I think he was um, I can't remember his first name but his name was Mitchell his second name was Mitchell ah, um, nice. yeah, and he set up um, a glass bottle factory um, in, in Bordeaux nice. uh, because what was happening was that there was um, a trade that was happening here wine was being imported in large barrels um, mm. it was coming into port um, so much wine was coming into port that we had to have a series of free ports because when um, they tried to put a tax on wine it just led to smuggling and there were so many shipwrecks and people died mm. so much they were like oh come on lads now we're going to have to have free ports instead so at least people aren't dying off the coast of ireland for wine." And mm. um so in these free ports you would have merchants who would set up their own um kind of um blending houses really I know like the um, I think the Kirwins and the Lynches were very famous for doing this um, in Galway um, and they would create like blends that people liked by mixing the wines together oh, wow, yeah. and, and this was this was acceptable it created yeah. great wines but it didn't sit well for the producers of the wines because yeah. the producers of the wines wanted to get a reputation for a their pure... wines because yeah, they yeah. wanted to command Did... a higher price first, you yes, know? Yeah, yeah, um, for it sure. so the only way they could do that then was to put wine into small smaller vessels um so they decided to take their inspiration from um, the port region i'm talking about what was happening in bordeaux
0: yeah.
1: um, they took their inspiration from the port region where they were already aging wines in in under glass um, mm. um, contracted this guy mitchell to build a glass bottle factory um, and then invented the bordeaux bottle um which is a bottle with um, a thin neck and sloping shoulders because this is also the first time that you're aging wines um And so sediment will drop out of that wine. You don't want that sediment getting into the bottle. So that's why it has the shoulders. It kind of becomes a natural break. The sediment won't end up in your glass and has big punch at the bottom of it. That's that dip in the bottom of it. So then you can set it down at a table because now people were presenting the wines. Also led to labels being on wines and people's names being written on them. And we kind of have the first time in wine history where we can start comparing what was happening from one vintage to the next um so that improved viticulture and what was happening in in the vineyards and it also allowed people to be able to taste what happens when you age things so is a wine that's four years old or three years old different to a wine that was made last year yeah. um so extraordinary changes from yeah. one little thing
0: and now a, 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 a quick, a quick segue. Uh, wine writer of the year. I can see why now. Okay, yeah. so tell me, <laughs> <laughs> right? Talk about like what, like as I was saying, I was talking to when I was talking to Wickloway Wines with, about mm-hmm. wine. I wouldn't be a wine kind of. So wine is quite niche, niche. You know, there's lots of different wines. So many wines around yeah. the world. But let's talk about like what writing about wine. Like how, wh- what, what's your perspective? Are you are you writing from the person who doesn't appreciate wine? You're writing from someone who does love wine, or is it somewhere between? How does it work? Yeah, so
1: what I do is um like wine right, I really I love wine. I love the people who are involved in it. Okay. Um I think it's utterly fabulous. Um and I think it's really important to um, kind of find a way of telling the stories or, or talking a little bit more about it. So my way of writing about wine or the kind of things I like to write okay. about are, are kind of the fun, nerdy stuff. It's that kind of thing. It's a mix of history. It's a mix of random facts. It's mm. um, I really dislike listicles. I dislike going, these are my top five wines for spring. Like oh, okay. I had to write a whole ton of those. And um, and I, I get it. but like you know what's the value i'm much more interested in 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 helping people understand why a wine tastes a certain way because of either who made it or where it is made like so where it grew where it came from yeah um so i'm interested in that combination of i suppose place being really important and and technique so i also think it's really like Wine, like wine, really is a time capsule. So it it captures a harvest at that that moment and and at that place. And then the joy is that we get to screw off the cap or Mm. pull out the cork, and we get to have our own experiences with it. You know, um, and it's come from a different place to where you're drinking it. Maybe in your kitchen with some friends, sharing a bottle of wine, or maybe at a restaurant, or I don't know, wherever. Um and i i love that i love that it like kind of it 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 it's a time traveler and a space traveler at the same time um and it's delicious so those kind of quirky kind of styles of things with it i'm that's that's the kind of thing i'm i'm really interested in wine writing it's more i suppose the experience side of it rather yeah. than the um these are wines for christmas dinner because you'll always find things of doing that i think i think it's interesting what you what you mentioned about wine being very niche very segregated I think there's so much fear that's involved in wine and uh, I just like wine is so widely enjoyed and drunk and as soon as you go to anywhere that makes it you realize that like it's, it's an agricultural product it's like it's like milk you know mm. <laughs> people just drink it and enjoy it they don't you know, there's not this huge um, fuss about it. Um and I think I yeah, I just think it's really um I think there's so much scope for um I suppose helping people to become more confident with their choices. Cause often I meet people who they're like, Oh, I don't know much about wine at all. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you drink it, don't you? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, well, then you do, you know, and, and do you know what kind of things you like or you don't like? That's the most important. Yeah. Um, and if you can identify things that you that you in enjoy in wine, then you can identify other things, like or other how you can stretch that to a slightly different way. But there's so much like, ah. Oh oh goodness like i even i'm like oh i'm not cool enough like there's yeah. so much stuff that goes on with it you're just like this it's it's an industry that when when you see how it's being made it's such a contrast um when you're hanging out with with winemakers um and particularly in countries where wine is wine where wine is being made and enjoyed compared to if you go to like the places that like, oh, it's just so there's so much extra stuff that doesn't need to be part of wine it's like open a bottle let me taste it do you like it that's all that matters
0: I think it's different I mean like I don't know when too many beers that go for like what two and a half brand or whatever vintage so beer. this
1: is it it's like it's yeah. a price tags um, yeah. and that's insane like it's yeah. insane and I like I get it I love really old burgundies I absolutely yeah. love them can I afford to buy them absolutely not do I drink them when someone else buys them hell yes <laughs> <Yeah>. you know <laughs> I'm with you I was in a, yeah, yeah. like this incredible tasting of Grand Cruze um in 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 Burgundy like last year and mm. I'm down in this cellar I'm like they're opening these magnums and they're like yeah, yeah. you know older than I am and I'm yeah. like wow you know you're tasting this stuff and, and you talk to to the winemaker and you go oh, like it's very elegant it's very lovely because yeah. well it is the Best wine in the world. And I'm like, and (laughs) and and how many bottles did you make? And he's like, this year on this vintage, uh, 73. And I'm like, oh, okay. So very small production, like tiny amounts. And then Burgundy is utterly fascinating. This is why it 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 costs so much. Like, and then they sell, they're like, I could sell everything to the Chinese, like for the next three generations, and they'll all go crazy about it and they will want to spend thousands on a bottle i hate that like you know it's it's the same way that i have absolutely no truck for fancy cars or watches i just think it's uh, i just yeah proving that you have lots of money for the sake of having lots of money like i can yeah yeah, i'm sure it tastes nice but like how how nice would something have to taste to be worth like five or six grand like a bottle How nice! Like I don't, Uh, I don't know. I can't.
0: (laughs) Typically, you were saying like you know, like how would you normally drink a Burgundy? Like if you're drinking Burgundy, would it be chill room temperature? How would you normally?
1: So it depends. If I'm drinking whites, um, if I'm drinking very heavily oaked whites, I won't drink them, um, super chilled. Um, they'll definitely need food. Um, if I'm drinking like a super easy, like um, you know, um simple shabbily like yeah i'll just be i'll just be drinking that nice and cold and hopefully with you know a bit of cheese that would be nice maybe some oysters that would be even lovelier um, yeah. and then if i'm drinking reds again um yeah you just have to think about um uh, burgundy wines tend to be really quite elegant and as they get older they they do end up with this like this is why they're famous they can like i did this tasting of the <laughs> <it> sounds <bonkers. laughs> did this tasting of the threes like no actually it was the eights going back to 1938 it's saying that i get to taste something that's like this old and, and also this delicious um and they do they develop these like really um they like pinot noirs from burgundy have this beautiful structure they're utterly gorgeous um so yeah it would depend and hopefully what i would say is how i would drink it with someone nice that's all i care about (laughs) i think things taste better with nice people it's i agree is that
0: totally agree totally agree i can feel i can feel awkward when i'm drinking with people i don't really appreciate oh yuck
1: it was interesting too because i found that during the pandemic um my unlike many other people my consumption of alcohol really decreased like it went through the floor like i'd have like the odd bottle of fizz maybe with my sister um but it just utterly dropped through the floor and then that was really when i realized that um i drink in company um because i think being with nice people makes things taste better
0: yeah i agree now my brother has this theory he works in the the bar industry Mm -hmm. in um paris He, he has a theory that there's a bit of top behind the actual bottling of your wine. So the deeper the, the groove and the bottom of the mm-hmm. bottle, does that make a difference for the taste or does it mean there's it's a it better quality if it's a bit a deeper groove or le- less where it deeper? makes
1: a difference is that practically it tends to make the bottle feel heavier. Okay. Um, so, and, uh, 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 there's um, a researcher called Charles Spence who's done a lot of um, research into why we like things. You know, like yeah. why sensory the sensory aspects of of alcohol and food. Um, and what he found out is that if a wine bottle is heavier, people will pay more money for it. Simple, that's what they do. But okay. people will pay much more money for a glass of wine if the glass is lighter. So like if you get, and you know this yourself, you go to a fancy restaurant, you're like, oh, and you pick up the glass, it feels like a feather. It's like air. You're like, oh, this is fabulous. It must be the best wine on the entire planet. You know, but people like hefty bottles. They like to feel that the bottles are heavier. So your brother's on to something. A lot of people who would create a wine with a deeper punt in the bottom of it, that's that indentation in the bottom of the the bottle of the wine. It means that there's more glass in the wine um, or containing the wine. There's more glass in that bottle. um, And therefore, it tends to be more um, people can command a little bit of a higher price type version. Which is becoming more problematic now that we have to think about um the environmental impact of shipping things that are heavier.
0: Okay. All right. Okay. So yeah. is there more of a cost and heavier like goods, I sort of think?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. There's it's it's hugely more expensive and more resource heavy so if you find those things like um I know Perna Rickard has moved to much lighter glass bottles uh mm. recently for their spirits there's a big movement people have been trying to push the bag and box thing for a while it's reluctant I think because um as we have been talking around wine, wine people tend to be a little bit more conservative in relation to um to how they like their things packaged, you okay, know. Yeah. yeah, not a huge fan of wine in cans. People tend to be not a huge fan of even screw caps, which is ridiculous because the screw cap delve enclosure is a brilliant way of um, yeah. of closing and aging wines. Um, but people tend to be a little bit more conservative in in the wine world.
0: Johnny Walker brought out a bottle before. Was it was in a curtain? Remember mm, that?
1: Yeah, that was yeah. interesting. It is interesting. There's no reason why it wouldn't work like it's it's um, light proof, like light Mm. tends to be the biggest thing. So if you're looking at packaging, you just want to get rid of the light. You want to eradicate it. That's why cans are really great for beers like, you know, um, and it's been really, I suppose, only the movement that um, canning technology has become more accessible, like generations before it was really only available to the enormous companies. And that's why um, entry level beers and mass produced beers were in cans because they were the only companies that were able to afford it. Um, but it's an excellent way of of packaging beverages really good when it's done properly.
0: We could talk for days, but we are talking for days, Susan. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up soon. Um I wanna go I'm gonna I'm gonna go to your PhD. Okay. So you're yeah. doing the PhD. What research or what's your main uh, focus of research uh, uh, for your PhD? Like, what are you focused so, on? So um,
1: I think it's it's nice that we've come to this question kind of near the end of this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because I think it will make sense what I'm researching. Okay, So go. I'm looking at the importance of place and storytelling to beverages. And okay. um, so I'm specifically looking at like why we drink things in certain places and who we decide to drink them with. Okay. Um, and my approach to that is I'm specifically looking at how you can use elements of theater design and performance to enhance. These in-person immersive beverage experiences. So, um, and my approach to my PhD has been project-based. So, I've done the project with the British Museum mm. um, about um, about the rebrewing of the ancient Egyptian beer. Um, yeah. The other project that's going, A significant part of it is this project, the Spirit of Ireland, um, which is the immersive education project that I developed for Bordbia to support Irish spirits internationally. Um, and then I'm also looking at like comparative studies of things like the Cité du Vin in Bordeaux and um, the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin. So okay. how we create spaces that are about the story of the alcohol, but that don't actually produce the alcohol in either place which is interesting and a very different experience to when you actually go to a real brewery or a real winery, um, which can often be quite boring because it's just loads of stainless steel. (laughs) People think brewery tours are often going to be more exciting and you're like, no, it's just happening inside that tank.
0: (laughs) It's kind of a storyteller as well. They're they're selling that story, especially if you haven't got the bells and whistles of a brand home or a Guinness storehouse or wherever, Mm -hmm. Heineken, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you have to sell it.
1: Um, and you do it in a different way so like you're right so these kind of experiences where there aren't um where the product isn't being produced i think that's particularly interesting in um, like the du Vin. like there's vineyards all over bordeaux but there's no like there's no wine production happening in the place that's telling the story of wine um and there's so no guinness being brewed in the storehouse where yeah. they're telling the story of Guinness um because sometimes there's and i think this is also i think there's a lot of growth or um potential room for um for brands and for um particularly i think in the spirits world to start thinking about how they're telling their story um because um and I think this is really maybe the area that I that I'm kind of like looking at, at or I'm doing more kind of consultancy work in is mm. to help people to to develop their own personal story, because I hear a lot of the we have thousands of years of distilling history behind us. And I'm like, well, you settled five years ago. Lads. Tell me about that. That's mm. actually really exciting. Yeah, your because story. yeah Your story. Um, mm. And I think people need to be a little bit more um, embracing of that and work out what they can do to make themselves um stand out and, and be unique um because there's some phenomenal um phenomenal spirits being produced on the island of ireland uh, and overall we're telling a really strong story about it um but i think individually there's a lot of work that can be done there to make it um to differentiate within the market so that people understand um because sometimes when i'm in like when i'm in the us um, or i'm in canada or wherever i am there's a feeling that like oh this that there's not the diversity that there is within the Irish spirit industry. Um, And it's hugely diverse, particularly within the whiskeys. It's it's very exciting that we have so much scope to do so many interesting things um, within the Irish whiskey category.
0: Because cool. you said you've been you've been investigating the influence of European immigration on brewing um in America like yep. in the early twentieth century, can you talk about that for a second or for a, little, a bit?
1: So yeah, this is a project I'm going to um, take on uh, probably in the autumn, which is quite mm. exciting. So um, I've been awarded a Fulbright fellowship. Um, through Fulbright, um, and I get to go to the Smithsonian um, Museum of American History in Washington, DC. And the Smithsonian has this phenomenal archive, like a really, really cool um, resource of of incredible things. And they also have a beer historian um, who is really amazing there. So um, what um, her work is, what Theresa McCullough's work is, is she looks at like um, brewing in the United States post prohibition so and also looking at creating um i think archival materials around contemporary craft brewing and how you kind of capture that and within the museum space but i'm really interested in the influence of europeans on the brewing and distilling industry before prohibition so um who was coming over what they were making um and how that created um, uh, an alcohol culture um, a brilliant distilling culture with, within the US. Now there's lots of work that has been done already in that field. Um, obviously there's been lots of Germans who came over, lots of lots of Czechs who, who also yeah. that's that's nicely documented and um, what I'm interested in looking at specific archives to find out what hasn't been pulled out or explored before um, to find those links. Uh, Fulbright are really um, great about supporting projects that create an exchange of mm. knowledge and information so this really suits that i can bring my i suppose more european research mind to an archive and and see if i can find some links there it's always when you go to do archival research you're never really exactly sure what's gonna what's gonna transpire but i'm i'm quite excited about the opportunity to spend um about six months in dc next year so um yeah exciting
0: I'd say you might make your way, way up to Minnesota, Wisconsin. They have a big German and mm. beer, really big beer into craft. They're really good, really uh, proud of that craft beer. Yeah. And I think you'll find a lot of German and Polish roots there, I reckon.
1: Amazing. Yeah, I'm so, looking forward to it. It's going to be, it's going to be super fun. Wherever it is and whatever I do, I'm sure I'll find um something nice to put in my glass and someone nice to drink with it with
0: no, Nice. Okay. I'm going to wrap it up soon. And um, I, w- I want to finish off. I've been starting to do this thing where I finish off on a kind of like uh light and breezy um kind of question round for yourself just away from what you do i guess so let's start off um okay so what's your favorite reality show like ju- like on tv netflix like with judges that kind of thing
1: oh you know, um
0: food or drink or whatever
1: i'm an absolute sucker if it's reality tv i love 90 day fiance i'm
0: <laughs> okay i think
1: it is insane and brilliant at the same time <laughs> it's terrible yeah, it is. <laughs> because it's just everyone is so hopeful and they all really want to be in love and then it's just always such a disaster oh it's so anyway i love it maybe maybe i'm just a romantic at heart
0: <laughs> okay what in the food sphere like like the cooking food spirits like there's lots of options these days it used to be just like food you know like cooking yeah. shows master chef <laughs> like what other shows would you lean into
1: Food reality TV wise and 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 drinks reality TV wise and um, I really liked I thought Jaga did a great job on Brewmasters um if you watched that um I, I liked like that I thought it was a really great pairing um I, I know Jega from beer judging and from hanging out in London and she's she's a, just a joy to see every time she presents something so um and I thought the combination of her and James Blunt was really fun um and that was an, an interesting kind of a. Um, a a way of putting beer because it's very hard to do a reality TV show around beer because it takes time to brew so Mm. um, you need probably the best part of six weeks to be able to put it together and as we just said about like having um, museum spaces that are dedicated to the story of alcohol rather than the production of it because you don't Mm. want to sit there waiting for something to ferment so I I think they did a good good job of coming up with a a compromise of doing that show Uh,
0: Favourite movie?
1: Oh, I don't how, how do I choose one I don't know
0: pick one like what's one movie you go I'll watch that again and again and again
1: I don't know I really don't I, I absolutely couldn't pick one movie I'm, I'm terrible um hmm I could get, could I get, could I get pushed for one? Ugh, oh, no, um, really? I, you're, gonna, you're gonna leave me a blank on that oh, one yeah, no. I'm terrible, I'm really bad. Like unless you go back to like real classics like, you know, The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Something that ends up like every Christmas, you're like, oh, I'll watch High Society again.
0: <laughs> I'll give it that, I'll give it that, I guess. I did like the, uh... I actually did like, I don't watch too many Disney movies, but I did like Cruella i actually love mm. emma stone oh, I it emma stone oh watch it it's very good okay I great it's, i it's, love it for like a disney movie i think it's, it's really good crack okay so you're not always in the bar uh, drinking wine beer spirits touching no what's your, what's your hobbies uh, and interests away from work
1: uh so i love going to the theater like yeah it's i absolutely adore it um i was very lucky i got to um spend a couple of days in new york um on the way back from a trip um, that I was doing like the Spirit of Ireland on. And I think I was in town for like 48 hours and I saw five shows. It was insane. I saw like two matinees each day and then picked up a matinee on the last day before I went to the airport. So um, that was really great. So, yeah, I love live theater. Um, I think it's always inspiring and wonderful. And I like to swim when I get a chance. Yeah, um, I think. I like being underwater.
0: In the sea or just in a pool?
1: Um, so I am a worse when it comes to cold water. I'm not going uh, to like, you know, getting in and getting out for the sake of it. No. And I like I like swimming for a duration. So I like being able to to get in and swim for, for a couple of K. Um, and yeah, I just I like the fact that you just get to the end of the pool, you flip around, you go back. Like you, do, like your brain just completely zones out. All you have to do is remember to breathe when you get a chance. And it's like, the better you are at swimming, the lazier you are. So it's an absolute joy because I, that's the kind of sport for me and it's never going to hurt my ankles or my knees. <laughs> I'm going to be able to do it if I live to 80.
0: <laughs> okay, well, uh, two more questions. Uh, okay, favourite beer setting, drink setting, like, what, 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 where would you like where do you feel most comfortable when you're having a, a drink, you know, is
1: um, it, outside okay. somewhere in the sunshine,
0: sunshine. Okay.
1: Yeah. Outside somewhere in the sunshine. Beer is a sunshine drink. <laughs> okay. I know there's like, you know, pints by warm, cozy fires, but give me a glass of whiskey for that. Um, but put me, put me somewhere in the sunshine with a beer and I'll be just delighted.
0: Okay. One last question, uh, on a night, your go-to evening tipple drink.
1: Um, depends on the night. Um, does depend on the night so i i love drinking spirits consistently through a night i feel very in control of it and i i love it i started to drink whiskey first going to weddings because i found that if i had a if i had a red breast in my hand no one was pushing crappy sauvignon blanc on me and i was going to be the last person on the dance floor so i i loved it and i think um i think spirits are great drinks to drink neat because you can sit there you can have it in your hand it's not going to get too hot it's not going to get cold it's not like you're it's not a big glass you have to worry about so um i adore just drinking spirits um when I'm when I'm out and about um, but yeah that or a glass of wine or a beer or whatever you know it depends on the setting
0: I kind of agree as well with a beer I feel like especially if you get a beer in a round or whatever
1: yeah I just, so same here you know and do I want to spend the whole night queuing to go to the loo no yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know women's toilets you just don't mm. want to be hanging around them if you have a choice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, or any toilet I'm sure um, so I'm like why would I spend my night like you know um, but I think and being in a round so this is really key um, especially when I'm out drinking with with friends of mine who drink faster than I do. Um, I want to be able to be there at the end of the night and I want to be able to get myself home. So I find if I'm in around and I get to have a spirit in around, um, it's great because I'm way more in control of, of what I'm doing, you know. Um, I really like it, um, and it's I don't feel the pressure because this first kind of couple of lovely glugs of a pint, where they're all delicious and cold and at the right temperature and just yum. Um, if you don't keep drinking at that pace, by the time you've held it for the next like you know twenty minutes, it's pretty yucky at the end of it. So um, yeah. yeah, I I'm with you on the on that. <sighs> Like okay.
0: Having it, having it, having something that's not going to change too much. Nice. Okay, Susan, we I've taken so much of your time. I'm going to leave it to it. Okay, I'm going to you on again. I think we had we had a, had a good uh, deep dive. There's so much more to talk about, um, but it's been great having you on. Take care. Thanks a million. Take care. Bye. And that was Susan Boyle. Uh, as I said, I was looking forward to speaking to her about just all her experience as a beer judge. A person who writes about wine, very, very much a deep dive into history of beer and wine, and where, how she got into that uh, area of work. What's going, on, guys? My name is Shane. Uh, I have podcast is called Heartlines. This episode has been about the beverage industry as I continue on that theme. And if you like this episode, please like, share. Uh, friends and remember you're always welcome here in heartlines take it easy and bye -bye.